project resume can make your medical coding dreams come true. From resumes to interview skills to navigating a successful career, Project Resume has the advice you need from coders you can trust. See all that we have to offer at projectresume.net. Please make sure to reference Medical Coding Geek when you place your order. Do you need a specialized recruitment partner to send you only qualified candidates? Do you need interim staff while you conduct a search for a permanent employee? Or are you losing hires to competitors? Renowned Talent recruits experienced HIM, RCM, and CDI professionals using their trusted candidate screening and retention process for health systems and employers around the U.S. Whether you have one or multiple openings that you need to fill ASAP, please visit Renowned Talent. And tell them you heard this ad through the NEC podcast. Again, visit RenownTalent, R-E-N-O-W-N, Talent.com, and tell them you heard this ad through the NEC podcast. You are listening. You are listening. You are listening to. Do not to not elsewhere. Not elsewhere. 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 Classified. Welcome to Not Elsewhere Classified, a podcast about the medical coding, health information technology, and clinical documentation improvement community. I'm your host, Brian Kui. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Not Elsewhere Classified podcast. If you're listening to this podcast for the first time, welcome. Over 70% of our listeners listen to this podcast through Apple Podcasts. So please pick up your device and leave our show a five-star rating and a review. You could check out Medical Coding Geek and Not Also Classified on Facebook and Instagram. You could check out our Facebook groups by going to medicalcodinggeek.com services. And while you're there, if you need a speaker or need a partner to promote your brand or service, feel free to reach out to us. And of course, you could find me, Brian Kui. My last name is spelled C-U-I on LinkedIn. So today on the podcast, I have Alan Frady and Amy Char from the podcast Coder vs. CDI. So in this two-part interview, we get to know about Alan and Amy on how they got into coding and how they got into clinical documentation improvement and, of course, how it evolved into this podcast. And through our discussion, it felt like another episode of Coder vs. CDI. So without further ado, here is part one of my interview with Amy and Alan from Coder vs. CDI. Enjoy. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Not Also Classified podcast. Today in the podcast, I have another podcast on this podcast. <laughs> it's a coder versus CDI uh, with the hosts, Alan Frady and Amy Char. Uh, Alan and Amy Char, <laughs> welcome to the podcast. How are you guys? It's an honor to be here, Brian. I've been listening to you for a long time, and I've I wanted to be on the show for a long time, actually. Right, so cool. thanks for having us. You're welcome. And as I told Alan, Long-time listener, first-time caller. So, oh, really? It's okay. A pleasure. Cool. Oh, nice. Well, thank you for uh, listening to this podcast, and I'm, I'm excited to, guys, to to have you guys uh, on. Uh, so, if you guys don't know, it's Coder versus CDI, not CDI versus Coder, right? So, I just wanted to make sure. Yeah, we have oh, you have the Coder first, so um, okay. Coder versus CDI. I think you can actually search it on Google now, and it'll come up. 
Okay, cool. So we have uh, so they they have their own podcast, Coder versus CDI. I, I love the before we even get into all of the questions that we usually have. Uh, I love the <laughs> I love the artwork. It's so it's so simple. Like you know, there's no there's no graphics. You just wrote it in there, put a little microphone, and just put it right out there. Um, which really, you know, it really says a lot because it's like, you don't, you don't need much to get it started, to get a podcast started, to get anything started, just put up something, put it out there and, uh, people will listen. So, uh, I'm excited that you guys did that. Um, so you guys have a podcast. We'll talk about that, but let's start off with the usual questions. And I want to start off with Amy, right? Uh, Amy, where did you come from and how did you get to where you're at today? Um, I stumbled into coding by accident. So um, I was one of those go-getters in high school, got a full ride scholarship to Texas A&M to major in agricultural development. Mm. I was a future farmer of America, um, really didn't think about healthcare. And so um, my junior year, I decided that I did not want to be an agricultural lobbyist and go to law school. So I decided to take a break. And I went back home, back to California, and I ended up enrolling in an ROP program at a local community college. And um, there was a medical coding class. And it was more for like physician office administration. But I was lucky enough to have an instructor that said, you know, you seem really good at this and you can get a degree in this. And she told me about becoming an RHIT. And so I went home that day, looked it up um, and actually did Santa Barbara City College's online program to get Mm -hmm. my RHIT. Mm, So I started working at a children's hospital during the day, going to school at night, and um, got my RHIT, went into their coding department, uh, because that's where I had done my internship, and then just from there slowly progressed. Um, It clicked for me, so I started doing peer review, started doing audits, moved up within that organization, got the opportunity to be an HIM director. Mm at a local community hospital. Um, and that's where I was over coding, but I also got the opportunity in 2009, 2010 to start a CDI program. Wow! And so that's really where I cut my teeth. And, um, what was great about that, but there were, there were pros and cons, um, to put it into perspective, I took over an HIM department where my predecessor had been there 42 years. So, um, a lot of changes yeah. that we were trying to implement and a lot of just trying to adapt and maximize revenue. And so there wasn't a ton out there about CDI. Um, and so I got to trial and error, experiment, um, fail forward, if you will. And there wasn't really anybody there with enough experience to say, that's not going to work, or I think that's a bad idea, or here's how you do it. So I was able to take that and then um, move to Sutter Health, where I was once again over coding. We did a major reorganization and moved to a shared services model. I then left coding and started um, as their regional manager director over CDI there as well. And then I decided that I was going to go work 
outside of the direct healthcare environment and work for a software vendor. Mm. So um, I actually went to work for a software company and my job was to create coding CDI audit software that addressed the pain points that I experienced as a frontline coder CDS HIM director. Mm -hmm. So that was a lot of fun. Um, Got to work a lot with natural language processing um, and computer assisted coding applications, but how could we take that natural language processing and apply it in other areas that would still improve revenue cycle. So that was super fulfilling, but after almost five years there, um, I decided I was I was ready to go back to the healthcare side of things. So um, went back to a large healthcare system. I was the system manager for CDI encoding and um, recently transitioned again to another healthcare system and I'm their inpatient director of coding um, there. So kind of always, I'm one of those HIM professionals that coding subject matter expertise, but I've kind of always straddled the fence and kind of always tried to build interdisciplinary CDI programs where there was equal representation between HIM professionals and clinical professionals and have always really strived to elevate the profession of coding and to break down the silos between CDI and coding. So, um, it's a little surprising that I ended up on a um, on a podcast called Coder versus CDI because <laughs> I always think it's more of like Coder linking arms with CDI to you know improve outcomes. <laughs> that's that's another question I had. Why couldn't it be Coder and CDI Coder versus CDI? But we'll definitely get into that. I, I just want to say, Amy, that's an impressive resume. Uh, you're hired. That might actually be the first time I've heard it, uh, to be honest with you. So that's quite impressive. Well, thank you. A lot of a lot of questions here. There's a lot of transitions. So you went from uh, farming industry, didn't like it. You didn't want to be a lawyer, right? So right. did you have aspirations to be a lawyer, but you just didn't want to do all of that? What, what happened there? I did. I mean, it's it's funny. You think back to when you're a little kid and I was obsessed with Ronald Reagan Mm -hmm. when I was little Mm -hmm. and I used to say I'm going to be the first female president of the United States Mm -hmm. so what's the fast track to government and politics Mm -hmm. well you've got to be a lawyer you've got to be a lobbyist and I got far enough into it that I was like this is not what is getting me out of bed every morning Mm -hmm. and so you know early 20s it's like is this really what I want to do for the rest of my life and the answer was no. So <laughs> I get it. I mean, it, the the type of um, that type of life, you know, trying to to do all of that can be definitely challenging. Um, so you got into coding. Then what I really want to know about because you know we're we're all CDI professionals here. I, I've been CDI. I've been in CDI for for twelve years. Um, is, is starting up that CDI program. <laughs> so what, what was it exactly like? You said, uh, you said, you said the, the hospital, I guess, department, uh, the leadership was around for 42 years. So they were in transition. So, um, can you describe and, to me what did that, what did that feel like? I guess, or, or not, not so much the challenges, but like, like, you know, start, really starting it off from, from the bottom. That's, that's where I'm curious about. So um, 
I'd like to think that I became HIM director because they saw all this potential, but I have to chuckle because I think I was the only RHIT within like a 200 mile radius. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So (laughs) this is my hometown where I grew up. Um, And it's, it was a 130 bed small community hospital. So not, um, not critical access, but the largest hospital for that area Mm. in Northern California and um, came in and actually it's, it's kind of an interesting story. So came in and I think we had three coders and none of them were credentialed. Oh boy. And so I think we had one outpatient, two inpatient and um, coming from a larger system I was just like blown away and everything was paper charts. Oh no. And it was still called a medical records department. I got a lot of flack for calling it health information because (laughs) they would be like, nobody knows what that is when we answer the phone and tell them it's health information. Mm -hmm. They want medical records. Um, so, (laughs) so this is the first place I had ever worked for with paper records Mm -hmm. and, you know, no, slick software tools Mm -hmm. either um you know we were using a very rudimentary encoder and so as things started to progress and i think the executive leadership realized the importance of coding um they were like okay we need more coders we need to get credentialed coders Mm -hmm. we ended up taking on all of the rural health clinics all of the outpatient we were expanding and so I actually started teaching a boot camp in my living room for coding. So I had reached out to everyone in the hospital mm-hmm. and that were ER techs, uh, case management administrative assistants, unit clerks, um, people from the lab, and had kind of put the word out that there was this opportunity for advancement. And, you know, I was willing to sort of train them from the ground up. Nice. And so, um, we basically it was intended to be done in the conference room but our conference room wasn't big enough and i lived close to the hospital so once a week we would just go get bagels coffee and we would sit around in my living room (laughs) and i had my laptop hooked up to my big screen tv Uh and we would go through the faye brown coding handbook Mm. and all of those lessons Mm -hmm. and we would go through coding clinics and then during the during the rest of the week, they would come in and kind of code charts and then they'd put them all in a stack and I'd review them and provide feedback. So over the period of time, by the time we got through the end of the the Faye Brown coding handbook, um, several of them sat for the CCA. Some of them I think were, you know, sitting for the CCS. Mm -hmm. Um, And we were also introducing at the same time clinical concepts and you know not just this is what's documented this is how you code it but what else is there how do we improve the integrity of the documentation what do you need to look for to clinically validate something what truly is the the definition of a reportable secondary diagnosis Mm -hmm. what does that monitoring evaluation treatment look like Mm -hmm. um you know, if we're going to say that this percentage of our patients have sepsis, what criteria do they need to meet to quote unquote be septic? And I started working with our chief hospitalist and 
and things like that. But basically at the end of a year, we went from three coders with no credentials to 12. Nice. Um, 12 FTEs that were dual credentialed in coding and in CDI. Oh, excuse me. Wow. So um, that was before some of the more stringent requirements as far as years of experience were in place. Mm -hmm. So it was a little easier to sit for the test. And if you could pass it, you know, you got the credential. So the CDI program sort of evolved out of that because we had a really engaged executive leader and he's like, okay, you know, we're losing money in these pockets with these diagnostic categories, or, you know, we're not managing our length of stay appropriately. Mm -hmm. So we would look at things together and I would start to do chart reviews. And I basically trained all of the coders to think like a CDI specialist. So before we had a program, it started with me going to the shift change meeting for the hospitalist every morning, mm. and I would give an educational tidbit. Mm. And so it was like, this is what we need in your HMP. This is what we need in your discharge summary. If you're doing a consult, these are the types of things we're looking for. And it was more focused on general things like specificity, acuity, you know, the basic concepts. And then it started to evolve into clinical conditions. Like, you know, we probably have an opportunity around malnutrition. We probably have an opportunity around acute kidney injury when it was still an MCC, for example. So really starting to dig in and partnering with the physicians to make sure that we truly were capturing everything that could impact that patient's severity of illness, risk of mortality. We weren't super query focused. Um, It was more about really being on the unit. And again, this is paper charts. So the doctors were there. You have a captive audience. And so it really was about those day-to-day chart reviews, openly communicating with the physicians, trying to make sure that what was what was being coded and abstracted was as an accurate reflection of the patient's story as possible. And um, we also started doing something where, again, like I said, we had sort of a rudimentary encoder. So it grouped, but you could actually go in and where the code was, you could overwrite the code description. Mm -hmm. So how we would do our CDI worksheets is we would code it as it would be you know, code it concurrently, but then we would overwrite the code description with exactly what the physician had said with that documentation. So what would happen is when they would get to the discharge summary, they would look at that worksheet and they knew exactly which diagnoses they needed to include and also provide the rationale and medical decision-making. And if there was something on there that they didn't agree with, they would then be prompted visually to say, this was ruled out no or it really wasn't this. Initially, we thought it was X, but now we know it's Y. And it was a prompt for them to explain themselves. And it got to the point where the physicians really were sort of dependent on that. And we would get calls. I'm discharging this patient and there's no worksheet. How do I dictate my discharge summary? That's nice. And so we would rush down there (laughs) to the unit to Uh try to get the, you know, concurrent codes on there so they could dictate their discharge summary. Oh my gosh. So that's kind of how it started from the ground up. Nice. No, I, I like, I like those. I like that, that last one there, uh, where you mentioned, uh, about, 
changing the code so that way it looked like what they documented because uh, especially when you look at you know physician documentation before you're talking about paper I mean it's funny because when you're going back about how you transitioned from a big hospital to a small hospital I went from a big hospital like a five like a, back then it was like three to four hospital healthcare system to a jail system and so uh, everything went from a hybrid environment to paper so I, I definitely feel your pain when uh or the the smack of reality uh, when you went there. But going back to the 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 um, the, the changing uh, the, the the changing of the code description that helps out a lot uh, in seeing that what what the physicians are trying to I, I, you know we're trying not to make them code, but you know we want to see what their documentation is and how it relates. Uh, and when they take action like that, I mean that that definitely shows that it's working. You know so. Uh, I actually like that aspect. Uh, the next question I do have is about the the software, um, because you know one of the um, you know one of the audience uh, sections within this podcast are people who um, who are in health information management. And so when you think of health information management, you're always thinking, uh, I guess, what they think is, the students they think that coding is the is the way. Uh, so when I hear stuff like natural language processing, uh, computer assisted coding, there's a technology aspect to that. So, um, how, I guess when you, when you transition back to the healthcare system, did you take anything that you learned or what did you exactly learn or, you know, what did you take away from that experience in doing the software and then taking it back when you went to back to the healthcare system? I think the thing that I learned most um, is that software is hard. I think it's easy as on the client side to to say, well, I just don't understand why they can't fix this, mm-hmm. or I don't understand why they can't make this enhancement request. So the, the one thing that I did learn from that is that it's probably harder than we have a perspective for mm-hmm. on, the, on the client side. So I, I can appreciate that. Um, but what I really took with me is kind of communicating and articulating requirements. Mm. So part of my job was listening to the client and then taking that and translating that into the requirements for our technical side, Mm -hmm. whether that was business intelligence or the actual IT coders, not medical coders, but IT coders to write the code and look at all the interface dependencies and root cause analysis and, and all of those things. So when I went to the healthcare system, I had a much deeper understanding of when something when you think you're not getting the right code, whether it's, you know, 3M, Optum, mm-hmm. Nuance, when you're looking at your software, I don't automatically look at data and say, oh my gosh, how could the coder have made this mistake? Or a lot of times I look at trended findings from like coding quality audits mm-hmm. and I say there's a CAC problem mm-hmm. because everything is dependent on the intelligence <laughs> of that natural language processing engine they're not all created equal right and then there's things that a software company will do with that engine that's proprietary technology and other algorithms and so a lot of times to get to the root cause of 
of an issue. It really is sometimes within the software, but not necessarily the software that you see. It's what's happening and the logic behind it that you're not. So um, I don't think the vendors liked me very much when I went back to (laughs) (laughs) the hospital side because there would be some calls that we would get on and I may have gotten a reputation for being a taskmaster and then we'd get off and I would be talking to a colleague or my boss and I'd be like, that answer was total BS, Mm -hmm. you know? So Mm -hmm. (laughs) it was nice to have sort of seen the other side of it. Um, But I think the other thing that it did is when I went to the software side, I think there was, it was right after the transition to ICD-10. And I think there was still some latent fear in the industry that ultimately computers were gonna take our jobs. And so the key takeaway for me was that I don't think a computer will ever 100% fully take our jobs because natural language processing is based off of natural language. And so a lot of times it's coding what the doctor says he's doing and intent is a human concept. So when we look at procedure coding and you look at some of the errors that like a CAC will hardly ever give you control as a root operation. Why? Because it's going to give you destruction or repair because they're performing a cauterization, an ablation, a fulguration, or suture ligation. And so it's starting down that pathway. It's coding what the physician says he did, but it's all about the intent. Why was that operation being mm-hmm. performed? Mm-hmm. And if it's being performed with the intent to stop bleeding, it's control. So there's human concepts that it's very, very difficult to train a machine or a computer to pick up on the concept of intent. Um, Another example is stent insertion. Okay. Most of the time it's going to, you're going to arrive at a code for dilation, but if it's being performed for an aneurysm repair, it's Mm -hmm. actually restriction. Mm -hmm. So again, but every time a CAC engine looks at that, it's saying stent insertion and it's following that pathway. Again, what was the intent for which that procedure was done? So I think that was my biggest takeaway is that I don't think, you know, the computers will ever completely be able to do autonomous coding, I think is possible within certain subsets of coding, but inpatient coding, I think there are complexities that it would be very hard for it to ever be a hundred percent autonomous. I agree, and and and, and uh, maybe Alan, you could jump on in here too, since you've been quiet this whole time. But I do agree that uh, you know, with with CAC, there's gonna be some minor adjustments that the, the whoever is gonna you know whoever's overseeing the CAC needs to be done. So, you know, case example, the one that you just talked about there. So you know, I, I can never you know people. I see it on Facebook a lot. I see it on well, mostly on Facebook groups where people start to panic. You know, is is my job gonna be <laughs> gonna be taken away uh, because of uh, CAC? I saw I'm not gonna name the company, but there was one company that was promoting you know better productivity versus a human coder, which I I don't agree <laughs> with, but um, I totally agree. Uh, you know, as long as as long as technology is there, it's I've always said it before. Uh, it's a matter of who controls what. So, you know, as long as we can control it versus technology controlling us, we'll be okay. Please 
take a moment and hear a word from our partners. The Haugen Consulting Group offers healthcare consulting, education, and auditing services utilizing a team of industry experts specializing in leadership, project management, and assessments for HIM and patient access. Their auditors and educators are experts in facility and professional fee coding and offer education for ICD-10-CM, PCS, CPT, HIM, patient access, and revenue cycle. The Haugen Consulting Group is thrilled to be a partner with MedicalCodingGeek.com and the Not Also Classified podcast. Go to thehaugengroup.com slash shop and use promo code GEEK15 at checkout to receive a discount on webinars and desk aids. Again, go to thehaugengroup, H-A-U-G-E-N group.com slash shop and use our promo code GEEK, G-E-E-K-1-5 at checkout. Looking for a convenient, cost-effective solution for interventional radiology coding training? Check out Cracking the IR Code, Mastering Interventional Radiology and Cardiology Coding Online Education, created by interventional radiology coding expert Stacy Buck of RadRx. This comprehensive online training offers access to content for one year, Q&A support available during your one-year enrollment period, hundreds of coding scenarios, and actual operative reports. What are you waiting for? It's time to earn that specialty credential. Go to RadRx for additional testimonials and information and use our promo code GEEK10 for special pricing. Again, go to RadRx and use our promo code GEEK10 for special pricing. Any any anything Alan you want to jump on in here? What's a what's a computer? <laughs> the thing that you're using. <laughs> I, so I'm not I'm not going to lie, I still I don't code all day long in production. But 50% of the time, 50% of the time when I'm looking up a code, I'm still flipping pages in a hard copy book. Is is that just me? Is that nobody else? Um, please tell me it's not just me. I, I used to. I was the paper book person, but I have not used paper. Like, I have not used a hard copy book to code ICD-10. Yeah, yeah. I use the, the encoder, but if I need to validate the code, <laughs> I'll, look, I'll look into the book version, the electronic book version, and kind of verify it from there, which is basically the you know, the, the fundamental steps of, of coding. So, you know, I'll look at it. Like, for example, if I, if I'm looking at something that is coded, I'm like, where is this documented? And so I'll go back from the code, look at the code descriptions, look at everything and kind of work my way backwards and fiddle through and see where it it lies and then find out where, where, where the actual verbiage is for that specific code. So that's how I use it. But, um, so you use that book for you, Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There yeah. you go. I use the coding reference, which takes me to the ICD-10 book. So it's it's interesting listening to Amy talk about how the CAC still needs further refinement and it's got a ways to go before it's really, really prime time ready. And I think it may become really ready for prime time around the time that will coincide with ICD-11 mm-hmm. because if you think about it, I don't know if this is true, but I've been told that ICD-11, there's not going to be a printable hard copy at all. It's not going to exist. Oh, it will only exist as a software um, program. And so it's got to be really, really good at that point. But I will say that while Amy's looking at this advanced stuff about whether or not 
CAC works correctly. I'm I'm still stuck way back on the fact that I don't even think that the algorithm with the key uh, the keyword indexing that we're all used to works correctly in all, in all cases. So I can still pull out my book and look at the book indexing and sometimes run across situations where the letter of the law book indexing appears to be telling me something different than the algorithm in an encoder. It doesn't mm -hmm. happen as often. I, mean, I will say, and Amy, Amy may, well, you, all, you both may know about it, used to see that more often. It has gotten better, Yeah. but I still run into it from time to time where I'm not 100% sure that Nosology got it right either. Agreed. If that and, makes sense. So, yeah, yeah, I think I think what you're talking yeah, about is like if you um, going back, like you if you try to search it, or, or I guess in my instance, I'll uh, I'll look at a because I do it backwards. I do the auditing aspect, so I'll see the list of codes, and then I'm like, okay, what does it look like? <laughs> Where can I find this in the medical record? And then I can't find it, and then I I think I narrow it down to a phrase that I think it is, but then when I look it up. You know, in terms of the the alphabetic and all of that stuff, I still can't find it. But when you type it, it comes up. I'm like, oh, okay, <laughs> that, that that's how they got it. That's how the that's the phrase that you, they use to assign this code. Okay, that's how it works. I, I see what you're talking about there. I, I think that is a great. Um, I'm sorry, Amy. I just want to say one thing. I think that is a great uh, point that interrelates with the spirit of our podcast. Honestly, mm -hmm. we just kind of hit on something that is a part of the spirit of, of, and I know that's coming up a little bit later, but that contributed to the idea to talk about this kind of stuff and to do it in a more real-time law forum is just that kind of issue. Okay. So before we talk about your podcast, let's talk about you. <laughs> the first number, the number one question for you, Alan, going back to you is where did you come from and how did you get to where you are today? So it seems like a common theme uh, that I never set out to be a coder mm -hmm. or a CDI. It was never on my radar to do at all. Um, depends on how far we go back, but we'll just go back to when I was working as a nurse. And whenever I was a nurse, I I enjoyed nursing. And the only reason why I left nursing was meant to be temporary. So I left on a temporary basis mm -hmm. because they had done some salary adjustments mm -hmm. and they didn't adjust it down the line. So they were hiring brand new grads at higher salaries mm -hmm. than nurses who had three, four, five years experience. So we were charged nurse. We were we've been there three, four, five years. And Brent and they because they used to post this is back in the nineties, so back in the days of paper, they would post the job listings on a job board right next to the cafeteria. So you could just walk by it and see what the salaries were. Wow. And it was clear that these new grads were making three, four dollars an hour more than we were. Holy moly. So a lot of us actually left um, I won't name the facility, but a lot of us left at once with the with the idea of going back. You know, we were we were going to go leave for a few months and come back at that minimum wage that the new high, new grads ah, were starting, which mm -hmm. would still have been a three to four dollar an hour raise for mm -hmm. us. And um, I went. I, I got like a temporary job as a case manager for an insurance company. So I worked for the we we call that the dark side. And back then, because it was my job to deny claims, and back then everything was scripted. We, we answered the phone. We had a script that we read, and we used paper copies of Interqual for uh, continued state reviews as well as elective procedures. 
And we had a par. I, I, I can say this now because the company's not open. They, they, they sold all their group out to another company. So we had a par. We had a certain amount of calls we had to take per day. And we had a percentage about, it was kind of a set percentage of how many uh, approvals we were supposed to give and how many denials we were supposed wow. to give. And if that doesn't just make you feel sketchy just hearing it. <laughs> it does. To be honest. Um, and, you know, I, I kind of enjoyed the work, but I didn't necessarily like the metrics. Mm. Me- metrics are the bane of all of our existence, I think. And anyway, they were selling out their policies to a larger company, and I needed a job fast. So I took it, I went to a newspaper. You can imagine this, okay, mm. back when newspapers were a thing. And I opened up the classified ads and looked for jobs for nurses. And I jumped into coding because there was an ad in the paper. I didn't know what coding was. And when I first really started getting into this industry, I thought terminal digit was, um, <laughs> it meant that the patient had uh, gangrene of maybe like some fingers oh, or toes. Geez. And so, you know, and you get this when you're on vasopressors, you, you get gangrene and your extremities die and have to be amputated. I thought that's what terminal digits were. Mm. I didn't realize that it was, <laughs> uh, for those of you who've never worked in HIM, right, terminal digit is the medical record system back when we had paper records of how you catalog the charts. So mm. that's how little I knew. And I went to a company who made you sign a contract and then would train you for several months. Mm. And I don't know if I can I say the name of the company. I'm not going to say anything bad about them. Maybe I should leave that out. Uh, I'll say it. So it was, it was a company called Lexicode. Mm, okay. And they used to be, uh, back in the 90s, I don't know how they are now, but they were hardcore. I mean, yeah. they really put you through the ringer. Mm-hmm. And I would say it was, it was worse. Than, in some ways, it was worse than nursing school. I think 70% of people in my class fell out of nursing school and probably 80 or 90% of the people that I started with did not finish coder training. Let's wow. Code. wow. Um, and I, I'm not going to lie when I say that they were, I saw people crying. <laughs> I saw people fighting. Wow. I, there were books thrown across the room. It was an episode of, of, of Hell's Kitchen, honestly. Wow. Um, and it was, it was hardcore, you know, and at the end, there was just like two or three of us left sitting at desks mm-hmm. and the whole rest of the room was empty around us. And so we got through that and it was a mil- again, only meant to be, temporary just to stop gaff for me to go back to nursing i ended up doing it for off and on for 12 years wow it felt a little bit like um what's that movie the princess bride a good job wesley i'll most likely kill you tomorrow it was kind of like that it was like okay i got through another day i'm probably going to quit tomorrow yeah and then 12 years went by and then i got into cdi kind of the same the same way cdi was only going to be a stop gap for me to find something else, some other career. And that was now nine years ago. Wow. Or 10 years ago. So yeah, 10 years ago. Um, so we'll see whatever I do next is meant to be temporary <laughs> if it lasts another 10 or 20 years. But you're, you're like myself. I, I'm very, I like, I mentioned in, in, in the, like the last podcast episode, I, I'm pretty loyal when I, when I, when I do a certain thing, you know, when I do like, for example, um, like I did CDI, I did it for twelve years. Twelve years, same employer, um, just just CDI. <laughs> Was I bored of it? No, but I, but I, I guess I I um, kind of took myself in it and saw, you know, I really wanted to know the ins and outs, 
And so now you said you're on the dark side. I'm on the dark side, <laughs> on the other side. And um, I'm already on my third year uh, doing the dark side stuff. And so it's very interesting, you know, to see uh, the spectrum, you know, from the beginning to the and then from the time of the discharge and then all the way through the claim side and the denial side and even the appeal side. It's, it's very interesting uh, to see it that fact. Now, I'm going back to not to to Amy's comment in regards to education, which I really wanted to address was, I like how you teach the coders, not just the coding, but then transition into understanding CDI as well, you know, and making sure that we're not just cutting it off from assigning the code. You know, we want to make sure there's that certain holistic approach uh, when we're thinking about just coding CDI, to me, it should be married. You know, it's it's weird though. You got you guys have a, a podcast called Coder versus CDI, but when you talk about it uh, in your episodes, it, there's there's a certain amount of fluidity between both of them. I don't know that it ever should have been should have been two separate things, and I understand why it it became two separate mm-hmm. things, and I, a lot of it had to do with just a few phrases in the guidelines here and there mm-hmm. that talked about whether or not you could interpret or whether or not, you know, there was, there was just a few things in the coding guidelines that I think forced the issue that probably didn't have to become an issue, but I understand how these two careers kind of divulged into their own paths. And and in a lot of ways are, 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 and have been coming back together and reconverging, I think, Mm -hmm. uh, depending on who you talk to and what program you talk to, um, you do get a lot of variability in the practice from system to system and hospital to hospital. Mm-hmm. But I think at the end of the day, we are or we should be all pretty much moving towards the same goal. And if you're doing if you're doing payer side, you see what happens when that mission doesn't happen mm-hmm. and the claim goes out and it's just not right, you know, and, and that's one of the things that we want to avoid happening. That's that's one of our main missions. Yeah, yeah, I, I see it on the on on the pay on the payer side because, you know, I, where where I used to work, I just only knew that systems, you know, documentation, the record, and all of that stuff. So when I went to this job. Uh, in the dark side, <laughs> um, I was, you know, I'm doing auditing nationwide. I see everywhere from the West Coast to the East Coast, from the North to the South. And, and the documentation, I guess, I mean, I don't want to say it's different, but it's it's like it, it, there's mistakes that are being made. And I'm like, it's blatant. <laughs> you know, it's either either one or two things. It could be I, there are times where it's a coder mistake. OK, fine. Um Another one could be like a query made. <laughs> and I look at the queries. Uh, I could tell, you know, I always promote when you create queries, there has to be a level of sophistication when you write it. And when I read the query, I'm like, oh, <laughs> that's not a good query. <laughs> and uh, that usually the queries lead to those type of denials because the, the information that was brought forth or whoever the CDI was, didn't bring enough information, didn't put in any, any enough effort to present any information for the physician to make a decision. And so I see those a lot. And so um, I, I, I could see it on the payer side. But uh, Amy, did you want to say anything about that? Yeah, I think in 
to me, it was never two separate entities. It's always been sort of one department. And I sometimes I've worked for a system where coding was part of RevCycle and CDI was part of quality. Mm -hmm. And so when you have completely separate reporting structures, it really does become sometimes an us versus them standpoint. Mm -hmm. But from an educational perspective, it was always important because typically you are not coding at a site where 100% of all discharge cases have a complete CDI review performed. And so you have to be that safety net if it wasn't reviewed concurrently, it needs to be coded, but it also needs to be reviewed through that lens. Mm -hmm. And I look at things like the AHIMA code of ethics. And when you look at, you shall not assign codes for things that are not clinically supported. Mm -hmm. How do you do that without applying or putting on your clinical documentation integrity hat? How, to me, it's it's kind of almost impossible to separate the two. So I think in some in some ways, this the industry has been siloed, almost like it's an artificial construct, if you will. It's not real because when you look at the core functions, there's more overlap than there is division. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I agree. And so, I mean, I know in the beginning, I mean, I'm going back to when I started. Uh, or when I first saw CDI, it was in around 2005. And so uh, I don't want to name the specific vendor, but there was only, to me, I knew there was only one vendor back in 2005 <laughs> who was okay. doing CDI, right? And so the way they promoted it was, was uh, you know, they hired nurses. Whoever was leading that, that company was a nurse. And so it was all nurses. And then they came into our facility and they wanted nurses and coders. So I think that's where... I think that consulting company kind of set the tone, right? And then from there, that's how it how it kind of created its own silo in CDI because, you know, I think it was more truthfully to me. I, I like to tell the truth. Like to me, it was more of a consulting move and a business move to separate CDI out from coding because when you have something new and fresh, <laughs> right? Like, ooh, ah, I got something cool to show you. And so when the when the hospital system buys in, well, there you go. The, the rest is history. I think it's just, it's, it's frustrating from the coding side. Yeah. Because when you look at it and it's really laid out for you, mm-hmm. it's like, so wait a minute. Your expectation is that I'm coding this. I'm also looking at it as a CDI specialist, yeah. but CDI specialists have completely different qualifications and a completely different pay scale. Yeah in some institutions and that's where i think some of the the division comes from yeah. is you expect me to perform the same core job functions but you're not willing to pay me the same wage for the same job yeah. now a coder can't go perform patient care right. <laughs> um and so it's not to diminish that but to pay an rn for cdi differently than in RHIT, CCS, RHIA, um, particularly in California where it was predominantly associate level degree Mm -hmm. RNs and then you had a bachelor or master's trained HIM professional 
and there was such a wage disparity. It, it was something that I think a lot of people in the industry on the HIM side took notice of um, from even an HR perspective of look at the job description. You're having us perform the same job, but non-RN is one pay scale and RN is another. Yeah, yeah. When I, when I started um, CDI, I mean, I had, as I mentioned before, I only had just my RHIA. <laughs> I only had my RHIA. Just. Uh, just, just my RHIA. Uh, that's where I came from the, the HIM, I was in the jail system. So I came from the HIM, the jail system to the CDI, uh, CDI job and just my RHIA cause they were willing to train me. So I had no, no coding, no, just very minimal clinical. And, um, when I got there, I mean, the coders gave me such bad, <laughs> gave me such bad looks because, cause I think I made the mistake. Because I knew everybody. I knew everybody because I was hired back at the system that I used to work at as a CDI. And I was just promoting. I'm like, wow, I got this job with zero experience. <laughs> and so you got coders. I mean, me and my big mouth and the coders who had their, who were there like, you know, for like 20, 30 years were like eyeballing me. Like, you know, what what's his pay? Because is it more than us? You know, that type of situation. I You could feel it when you went into that department, the HIN department. You could feel that division between coding and CDI. So, like, my my the way my personality is, I'll just cross over to the other side. I'll talk to the coders and see where they're at. Because I, I don't know. Maybe it's not my fault that I have the, you know, I maybe I could have a higher pay than them. Maybe they have a higher pay than me. But that was not for me to, to talk about that. But... Um, I mentioned before that I actually uh, cross-trained into inpatient for a year from CDI, and boy, it 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 like it wore me out <laughs> because the the work that inpatient coders do versus really what CDIs do it's incomparable because it's just different. But I felt like doing inpatient coding was a lot more because all of the stuff that you have to report. All of the secondary diagnoses, all of the POAs. Um, I know I had to assign surgical dates, surgical uh, physician codes, physician codes, all of that stuff. Discharge disposition, make sure all of that was right. And, you know, it's really just kind of building up this big Jenga piece, you know, this Jenga stack and make sure it doesn't fall over. But CDI, I mean... The way I was taught, just assign a DRG and just query. <laughs> that was it. And so when you, the comparison of just the work was so different, you know, when you're looking at CDI and inpatient. I love this conversation, by the way. It feels like this is turning uh, uh, Coding Geeks into an episode of Coder versus Why CDI not? Yeah. right now. So, yeah. So I do have a question, though, for both All of you. All right. Uh, has that has that? I'm not on the HR side of things much these days. Has that salary disparity? closed or does it still exist i don't know you, you can Do go you with know. that amy i think what i saw um is that it didn't it closed in the sense that <laughs> it, it closed in the sense that there were no longer two pay scales many organizations unfortunately took the pathway of hr said yes there is an issue you cannot have the same exact jd and have two different pay scales based on this credential because you can if you require an rn credential and that's what's making the difference the answer was sort of like then they need to be actually in a nursing role mm. so 
the way rather than unify the pay scale what a lot of organizations did specifically in high pay markets was they just made it so that coders were no longer eligible to be CDI specialists mm. unfortunately so that's a whole a whole nother thing so I will say that as somebody who was a nurse who worked as a coder who then became a CDI, which is an unusual track, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I was a I was a coder for 10 years before I became a CDI, but I was a nurse to start with. Mm -hmm. I will say that um, I think I kind of have a perspective where I'm, I'm a little bit of a, an equal opportunity uh, insulter in that I would see problems with both. So I would see uh, coders that I work with, encoding auditors, who would follow the indexing word coding path into something that it always made me want to say, congratulations, you co you followed coding guidelines perfectly, and what you ended up coding was not the right thing for the patient. Yep. And then the other issue that I would run into as someone who had coded for a long time looking at nurses coming in the industry was, I mean, it oftentimes felt like those poor nurses who were coming in and then trying to get a crash course in coding it often felt like they couldn't find a principal DRG, uh, a principal diagnosis or a DRG if you led them to it and pointed them <laughs> at them. They still wouldn't get it. Yeah. So, you know, it's fair to say there's challenges on both. And what, what that really led me to was the conclusion that, you know, it's quite unfortunate what Amy just said because the conclusion it led me to is that the best CDI team is a mixed team, a team where you maybe have that clinical perspective from the RNs, but you also have that deep coding knowledge, yeah. not just the surface coding knowledge that the CDIs may have, but the deep coding yeah. knowledge from the coder. And, and to truly, if you truly want to maximize your team and have a world-class program, I still think to this day a mixed team is best, a team that has a combination of both expertise. And you give that coder all the clinical that you can throw at them, and you give the nurse all the coding you can throw at them, mm -hmm. but you still need that mixed team working together hand in hand. Mm -hmm. That's really, you know, to this day, my philosophy. And I don't think the fix of the salary issue was just to declare that nurses owned the domain. I don't think that was the answer. Yeah. I, I think also when you think about the, the, when people are hiring, you know, when they look CDI, they're when they look at CDI job postings, they're assuming that it's going to be a high level uh, paying job. So from there, that's why they throw in the RN, uh, and it probably has its own pay scale and all of that. So that's that's the reason why I see that. Now the education part, um, you know, I again zero coding, zero <laughs> zero clinicals, but. Um, I mean, I had the very basic coding and I was taught by a nurse. So, you know, all the stuff that I needed uh, for clinicals was obtained by nurse, not just one nurse, but multiple nurses. But, you know, in the same regard, when when new nurses came in to our team, they came to coders for for advice. They wanted to get, you know, the the directional education from a coding side versus the clinical side. And we would just go back and forth. Uh, learning from one another. So I agree. The, the the team needs to be diverse because the education will only, you know, uh, widen its scope when you have both, I guess, of the best worlds in the team. I will say that the advantage that clinical um, professionals have, particularly RNs, is some of the most talented CDI specialists that I have worked with are RNCCSs. Mm -hmm. And um, 
I think in a way, if you think about it educationally, et cetera, it's a little bit easier for an RN just from a time and money perspective to sit for the CCS exam than it would be for me as a CCS <laughs> to go to nursing school and get an RN. Mm-hmm. So they do sort of have an advantage from that perspective. Yeah. But um, there are a ton of nurses. I'm not anti-nurse. Um, no. There are a ton of nurses that have you know, fallen in love with that field and they're passionate about it and they've gone and they've gotten their coding credential and they really do consider themselves subject matter experts in coding. So um, I appreciate professionals who, like Alan, it's not one or the other, it's both. Mm -hmm. I agree. Alan, you're gonna say something? Amy kind of said it for me. So, you know, we're already simpatico here. All right, cool. Finishing each other since. So there you have it. That is part one of my interview with Amy and Alan from Coder vs. CDI. You can check them out on LinkedIn and you can check out their podcast Coder vs. CDI on Apple Podcasts and major podcasting platforms. Or you can go to infotainment for CDI and coders.buzzsprout.com. MedicalCodingGeek.com